0: Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this edition of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am Chris Papa, Senior Managing Director of TBG Real Estate, with my lovely co-host, Mickey Penzer. How are you doing, Mickey?
1: Hi, I'm doing very well, Chris. How are you?
0: I'm great. Where are you today? Where am I reaching you?
1: I am in New York today, and it is really lovely out, kind of brisk but sunny.
0: It's cold in the Bay Area today. I'm wearing a jacket, and it's it's cold outside. Not not freezing cold, but, but just cold enough. And today, we have a very special guest, Avi Talias, is that how you pronounce it, Avi?
2: Correct, exactly.
0: All right. And Avi has a long career. He's now the founder of makerhoods.org, which we'll get into in a little bit. But uh, how are you doing, Avi?
2: Great, great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Our pleasure. And where are you located? You're in New York, too?
2: Uh, actually, no, I'm, my office right now is in Newark, New Jersey, just uh, just over the river from Mickey.
0: Oh, nice. I love Newark. I, just, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and so uh, I was just talking to somebody in Newark. I love it. I worked at the University of Medicine and Dentistry, UMDNJ, which I think now is Rutgers Medical. Yes, or something. my Rutgers. I, to, I don't know. When I was in college, I worked there. Yep. So I used to go to South Orange Ave. Yep. Mm-hmm. Close by. So, Mick, do you guys want to talk about how you guys know each other?
1: Sure. So I met Avi because we were both, I was a moderator for a panel about real estate and impact investing at Fordham Business School that a mutual contact of ours had put together. And now he is going to host a discussion group at a event that specifically focused on that topic of real estate and impact with the National Realty Club on May 15th. So it's kind of come full circle in that we met through this other event and now he's speaking at my event.
2: Awesome.
0: Where's is, where's is that event being held?
1: So that will be at the Harmony Club on May 15th and we'll include a link with the podcast or you can always contact me if you'd like to learn more about attending. It's at 8 a.m. We'll have different topics on affordable housing, on workforce housing. Green building, anything that you can use real estate to make the world a better place.
0: That's a very important topic. So, Avi, did you yep. uh, did you always grow up wanted to be an impact investor or a real estate uh, affordable housing investor or something along those lines?
2: No, no, that's <laughs> that's something that came about a little bit later. Uh, but I always did you grow up. Start for, but I always sorry, did grow up being very interested in, in small businesses and. micro enterprises so uh, that that part of it is continuing my passion
0: where did you grow up
2: Uh, I was born in Tel Aviv Israel and uh, emigrated to the United States when I was 10 years old oh wow
0: was it a big uh, shock to the system
2: you know 10 years old no nothing's really a shock to the system so it was um, definitely you know a, a foundational part of life obviously for every immigrant but we were, we were happy to be, come to the United States. This, this was the, the land of opportunity. You know, so I left the beginning of uh, fifth grade. And, in Israel, you start learning English on, in the fourth grade. Oh, okay. At least when I was there, maybe not even earlier. I don't know. Um, so I knew a little bit of English.
0: Where did you land in the U.S.?
2: Uh, in, in Queens, from the very beginning. We ended up in Regal Park, Queens.
0: Gotcha. Isn't the, the, the most diverse... Definitely the most diverse borough, I believe, but isn't it the most diverse area in the United States?
2: Yeah, the 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 number of uh, different uh, nationalities in Queens is incredible. It's right? so all of us who come from Kennedy Airport. Go-
0: you said that you grew up with an interest in small businesses uh, and micro businesses. Was your family involved with that, or where where did that come from?
2: Well, I I grew up in the southern part of Tel Aviv, uh, literally in a small industrial park that still had you know, uh, refugee housing there. So um, I literally lived above a cabinet maker. Across the street from me was a uh, welder and a um, uh, bolster, the, the potato chip factory, an injection molding factory. All of those were small little shops uh, right in, in our neighborhood. So uh, wow, grew up in that kind of a traditional industrial park.
0: Wow! So, like everyone's life, everyone's life revolved around business.
2: Yeah, that's all it was. It's, you know there weren't really the. That's like in the '60s. There weren't a lot of of organized large uh, large enterprises in, in Israel. So mostly it was a lot of small businesses in, embedded in the communities.
0: Mm-hmm. But were you, was your family involved with that too?
2: Uh, my dad was actually a uh, truck driver. Uh, he was an independent truck driver. He had his own truck, but he you know worked. As a truck driver uh, hauling um, uh, goods from one town to another. Oh wow!
0: Did he do that when he came to the the U.S.?
2: No, when he came to the U.S., he had a bunch of odd jobs, and eventually he ended up in the in the jewelry business, uh, selling uh, selling jewelry. Gotcha. What yeah. kind of jewelry? What's the street?
0: What's the street in Manhattan that has that? It's Forty
2: uh, Seventh Street.
0: Exactly,
2: Forty Seventh the- street. street. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he. Um, uh, god rest his soul he died about a year ago but he, he should really be on this podcast because you got a wonderful uh, wonderful story uh, you know he uh the proverbial immigrant really didn't know how to read or write english uh, as he came here and slowly worked and, and made some some good decisions and was able to um retire quite uh, quite wealthy
0: nice so tell me about it. you went to co- did you go to college with any sort of uh i mean were you the first person in your family to go to college and did you have any sort of career path in mind when you went there
2: Oh, in fact, the only person in my family to go to college. I have two sisters who who didn't uh, go to college.
0: Did you have any sort of uh, interest in business or anything like that when you were in college?
2: You know, I started out at Columbia University in the School of Engineering. And the funny thing, I ended up in the engineering business uh, as part of my career, but I I really didn't like it. So so I left, eventually got a degree in economics from um, New York University. And then I got my uh, graduate degree in business administration from Harvard University.
0: Not a bad one to go to. I've,
2: oh, heard, a of, lot I've heard of, of that fun. one. Yeah, a lot of fun, right. <laughs>
0: so tell us about you. So you went to NYU, you get out. What did you get into? What kind of troubles did you get into after NYU?
2: Uh, so I worked for two years as an investment banker at uh, the First Boston Corporation in New York. Uh, doing um, you know M and A deals really at the time when uh, you know this was mid eighties when Wall Street was hot and heavy on leverage buyouts and acquisitions and all kinds of shenanigans. So I learned a, a pretty good background in finance, and then uh, it was just a two year program. And then I went back to business school. And during business school, this is my second year in business school. I I bought a small business. Um, in fact, it was advertised in the Wall Street Journal. That's how back, far back it is. There's no internet then. So I bought a small business back in Queens, actually, in a town called Bayside. It was a, a small little machine shop that made products for the US government, military products, only about seven employees. And I proceeded to run that for about uh, 16, 17 years before I sold it to um, a Fortune 500 company.
0: Oh, wow. You built this little machine shop that you saw advertised in the back of the paper and uh you built that up huh
2: yeah i I bought it literally for fifteen thousand dollars and i sold it for uh close to 30 million wow yeah it was really uh, really, uh, it was a good business but we moved it from what it was to you know doing a lot of robotics and a lot of automation and of course right at that time automation became a very big big field and so um you know, we developed some new products and enjoyed some success. And so, you know, right place, right time.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. And then I say, so this would be relevant for you, right? So then I say like any, any schmo with two nickels in his pocket, now I think I'm a real estate developer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you get some money, yeah. What are you going to do with it, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. So, so I you know, I bought some land. I was, I was about to, you know, build some properties. And then an opportunity came to buy a bankrupt a modular building manufacturer called Coleman in New Jersey. Literally, the people who invented the stainless steel diner that is so iconic in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I bought that in 2005 or six. I don't remember.
0: And these people made the, the mate, they manufactured that?
2: Yeah, they made, the- they were, of course, the uh, uh, originators of stainless steel you know, diners. But they also made some other things. They had some products that were related to data centers and prisons and student housing. So that was a, 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 pretty, good, uh, a pretty good business, except that we ran into, of course, right at that time, the face of the um, 2008 recession. And really all construction just stopped. But well, uh, now
0: I know I live in the Bay Area, so the modular building has become a, a buzzword again. A lot of uh, the save on construction costs or building things in the factories and then shipping them out or things along those lines. I mean, was that alive and well back in the, the mid-2000s? Were people thinking of that?
2: You know what? It was just beginning. Uh, the, the the buzz around it, the lead certifications, and uh, all of those things were really important. And it was just beginning because we were just ne- then developing techniques for building beyond just the... You know, double Y type housing, and so it was just starting out then. The recession kind of put it back a little bit. You know, I I was the one actually that started the entire um, Pacific Park uh, modular building in Brooklyn. That was originally my patent. Oh wow! The building by the um, where the New Jersey Nets are playing.
0: So a client would come to you like a university that has student housing and say, "Hey, we need to build this," and you would just do it out. You would take orders or was it just you were just producing things and people would then come and buy those things? Did you take the orders first and then produce it or or vice versa?
2: You know, it's a a lengthy process. And this is what people don't really understand about modular construction. It's very involved. So, you know, you have to engineer it first. You have to understand how the building would be engineered for production in the factory. There's code issues. There's timing issues, uh, sequencing issues with the site uh, uh, work. So uh, all in all, it's a fairly complex endeavor, but it's a really good way to build if you, if you do it right. Mm-hmm.
1: I, n- I never really understood like what what's the big upside to doing it that way.
2: You know, that's a great question, uh, Mickey, because once you pencil it all out, it's not a major cost difference because what you save in the efficiency of the factory, you kind of give up in some of the transportation issues and some of the redundancy issues of structure and so on, but it does help streamline the process tremendously, and it does shorten the whole cycle time
1: quite a bit. So it's a time-saving
2: Time-saving, uh, you know, um, sequencing, you know, a lot of those kinds of issues really are, are beneficial to modular construction. Cool.
0: Gotcha. That's awesome, and then you, did you sell that company?
2: It's pretty much systemic in the way we build our cities. Uh, we don't create a lot of very cheap, very small spaces for you know people to try out their, their business, try to bootstrap their way up, try to become self-reliant and self-employed. So I said, okay, um, uh, how can we do that? And then so I founded this organization called Makerhoods to literally build clustered developments that are, you would recognize them as mixed use, but the commercial spaces are specifically designed to be affordable so that you can rent a 650 square foot, maybe 700 square foot little shop and a a traditional apartment above it. Both of them will cost you $1,800 a month, which is not much more than you would pay for just an apartment and you would rent it under the same basis. You know, you don't need a five year lease. You don't need five years of income, none of those things. So, by doing that, we give uh, entrepreneurs, micro-entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that, an opportunity to, um, to run a business. And, and so we also then decided to, that just giving them the affordable space wouldn't be sufficient. We also devised a whole bunch of programs to help them achieve profitability and sustainability and by helping them with their back office services, arranging for some microloans, uh, some training and technical assistance. So that's, that's how it all came about. It was sort of a transition point in my life, but it was really an opportunity for me to put together all the things that in my past were quite interesting to me and apply them to what I think is a very, very large problem in our society right now.
1: Well, my grandpa, when he came here, my dad's dad, he sold pickles and rags in, on the street, like
2: from a cart. All right. And so if he tried to do that today, Mickey, he'd be arrested in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's how silly it's become and how difficult we've made it, made it for people who really, truly want to be able to become self-reliant. So I said, yeah, why not yeah. do it? So, you know, I kind of jokingly call this the Lower East Side with better plumbing and an iPhone. You know, um, <laughs> why, why can't we do it on purpose? Whatever happened to your grandfather? And believe me, I get so many my grandfather this and my grandfather that when I tell my story. Why can't we do that on purpose? Why can't you build cities like that on purpose to help people?
0: It and almost sounds was, like you're trying to uh, reenact or recreate the, the place where you grew up, in a way,
2: right? Ex- well, that's where it came from, of course. We're all sort of products of, of our upbringing, but that's where the vision, of course, came from. Uh, but as I said, hopefully with better plumbing and an iPhone, and of course the iPhone is a, uh, you know, a, a proxy for providing good, services for people to get online and do the things they need to do. so how
0: did you create this i mean i have a lot of great ideas right I, i have i have many great ideas i don't just go out and do them maybe that's my fault but like you did so how did you how did you start that did you just say hey i gotta find a space where this could be possible and how did you find that space and did you get some like government assistance or anything like that or tell me about how you created this
2: well, you know, that's that's exactly right. So, I said, okay, now what to do, right? So, I decided because it does involve a lot of inertia. You've got governments and zoning and so on and so forth. So, of course, night and day, I'm doing research. And the first thing is zoning. So, you know, I went out there and made a few speeches. And really interesting, some uh, mayors started to call me up. I got a call from the mayor of Patterson. Say, hey, I heard about what you're doing. You come tell us about it. And Patterson is an interesting city. It's pretty high on the, on, on the um, poverty scale and, and, and a bunch of other, you know, social uh, indices. Uh, but the nice thing about it is Patterson literally was America's first maker city. You know, Alexander Hamilton actually was the one that uh, sort of designed it. So he called me up and said, look, what can we do here in in Patterson? So I started working on a project there, but before long, unfortunately, that mayor went to jail, and I did buy a piece of property as well. <laughs> um, yeah, funny but so sad. And, and and in fact, he's like the the second or third in the last five mayors of that city to go to go to jail. Oh God! Wow, really horrible. Uh, anyway, so
1: what did he go to jail for? Like embezzlement or
2: the stupidest thing in the world? You know, he used you know, city employees to do his gardening or whatever. It's just really stupid. (laughs) He was, he was mayor once before and got voted out or thrown out for doing something wrong too. So I guess he never learned anyway. um, So, 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 you know, I made some chats there and it looked like that Patterson was going to take a little bit of time to move forward. And I uh, bought a little bit of land also, you know, small piece in uh, Jersey city. So I said, okay, maybe Patterson is a little bit uh, more challenging. Let me go to a city that's a little bit more up and coming. And And I looked at Jersey City. And so I bought a piece of land in Jersey City. And I kid you not, they turned it down. They didn't think it was viable. They didn't think it would work. They thought it would be a problem. It was just really gave me a hard time. This is what all Mayor Fulop there, unbelievable. In fact, it was so so challenging or so frustrating that one of the folks at the Economic Development Office got so disgusted, he left and went to Newark. And of course, when he went to Newark, he called me and says, look, Avi, I'd like you to come to Newark. We'd like to do makerhoods here. Unlike Jersey City, yeah, I remember his quote to me, he says, we're hustlers, we really want to do this kind of stuff. And this is maybe five or six months mm-hmm. Frankly, That was before Newark got all excited about its potential capability. A little bit more, more, more humble, I guess. So I got before uh, the economic development folks, and I said, "Look, here's my idea. I coined a phrase called economic development, uh, employment-oriented development. i oh, sorry, employment-oriented development, which is really set to contrast with transit-oriented development, right? So transit-oriented development, you know what that is? It's building next to mobile transportation as a way to uh, reduce uh, the use of the car and have public transportation." Uh, but that doesn't, in my opinion, although that's okay, it doesn't really drive employment, uh, and certainly not for those who live in those cities. Whereas employment-oriented development is this idea that you develop properties and assets and projects so that parts of it are really designed to generate employment for low to moderate income folks. So so they love it. They love this idea of EOD, employment-oriented development. So they said, here's a, here's a piece of property right here in town. Uh, it's got a nice historical history to it, uh, historical story to it. Uh, it was actually purchased in the 50s. So it was a big mansion on the, on the property. It's about an acre and a half with a big mansion. And the mansion was owned by a woman who came up from the South, cleaned houses here in Newark. And then, you know, she loved hair products so she made a few hair products and sold them. Eventually had one little shop and another shop and a school, and before you know it, opened up a, a couple of uh, locations in a school and was able to purchase this mansion. She became Newark's first African-American millionaires. Oh, wow. so, cool. so to me, it had phenomenal, you know, uh, entrepreneurial juju. Even the guy before that built it in the 1880s, he was the, a guy named uh, uh, Kruger, Gottfried Kruger. He was the first guy in America to put beer in cans. So right oh, away... Wow. I said, this is my site. It's got great entrepreneurial buzz. And, uh, and I, you know, I need to do it on this spot. So, so, I, so I, I presented a plan where the mansion, it's a 20,000 square foot mansion, beautiful, the, voted one of the most uh, beautiful buildings in the country. That's going to become Newark's Newark Center for Entrepreneurship. So kind of a we work in the castle thing so that the first floor mm. is co-working and the other floors are just rentals. And the area behind the mansion, I'm building 66 apartments and 16 workshops where the 16 workshops are designed to be affordable for local entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So uh, so what type of
0: entrepreneurs are in it? What kind of entrepreneurs are
2: in there? So so part of the strategy of of my project is, you know, it's not just providing cheap space. So in many ways, it's not Mm -hmm. purely just a real estate play. It's also providing business support and services and hand-holding and micro loans and technical assistance and so on. So it's both. So in order to do that efficiently, I said, we're gonna cluster the 16 shops to have eight food-related shops and eight fashion-related shops. And the reason I picked those two is that as part of our, our market penetration, we start gathering the local makers. So we hold makers' meetups, And all the makers come out to the meetups and we meet with them and we hear about their business and we do all kinds of programming with them. So I noticed that there was a bunch of uh, fashion-related ones and food-related ones. I said, great, we'll do eight and eight. And that really helps. It helps me deliver financial uh, services. It helps me deliver business advice because they're all in the fashion business so we can bring somebody from that industry to talk to them and so on and so forth. So that's how we, we picked this idea of clustering similar businesses. So we've got, you know, uh, Melody who makes uh, uh, wedding dresses. Uh, Once every four months, she goes to Ghana. She's an African-American woman. She goes to Ghana, buys African prints, and and then she makes wedding dresses uh, out of it and or sells them to, you know, wedding parties. And uh, also a, a young woman named Paris who makes beautiful leather overcoats. And again, she's... Uh, had some uh, fashion classes, and she started making them in her house. She's actually a resident assistant in one of the local colleges. And oh, wow. Nico, the, the caterer, and uh, the uh, owner of a company called um, Eternity, sorry, Eternity, where she makes vitamin-infused tea. And you've got to see how she comes to our meetups, her baby's in a stroller and she's taking her baby everywhere and she's selling a thousand dollars a month of tea to the local, maybe five, six local stores. So really cool stories and we know, we know that once we put them in this kind of environment, you know, now they have a little shop, they live upstairs. So the kids are upstairs. They don't have to commute. And we've got a whole staff of support to help them with their logos and getting online and a little bit of bookkeeping and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a, it's turning out to be a a really nice way, you know, maybe it's not the first run of the economic ladder, but it's definitely a little, a, a little step stool to the first run of the ladder, you know, and it really is helpful.
0: Well, it's sort of like, it reminds me of like incubators where they have in the tech scene out in the Bay area where I am. It's like they take these companies and they put them all in one place and they kind of help them grow. And I mean, it's not on a manufacturing side or the, I guess the maker side, but it is, uh, well, I guess maybe a little bit, but it's more the tech side. And
2: That's right. We, we, we so quickly uh, recognize, you know, tech startups and tech entrepreneurs and all of that. But, you know, this is, you know, 80% of America is not tech entrepreneurs and it's not, you know, give me, you know, hipsters that, that know how to get around in life. You know, uh, <laughs> 80% of them are folks like what my dad was, just trying to <laughs> send kids to college, just trying to make a living. And we really haven't, built enough, quote-unquote, incubators for those people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can, I can hear the passion in your voice. It's awesome that, you're, that you found something that you really are, are into. You take an active role in mentoring these companies?
2: Yeah. So our, our team now is composed of about six people. One of them is Kristen Mosian, who's our director of community, or what we call the maker's ambassador. So, yeah, she works with them all the time. We start off with a cute little analysis called, how to, uh, you know, how to quit your day job. So we do a little P&L statement for them and a little break even to say, well, Melody, how many dresses do you have to sell in order to quit your day job? So we go through, okay, you're making this much now. This is what your, your dresses cost. You know what? If you only sold this many, you'd be able to quit your job. Uh-huh. And then we say, okay, phase two is what plan do we put together in order to get there? And then we work with them very actively.
0: Do you see the neighborhood around you, like where you're where you're doing this, come alive, or is it changing because of what you're doing?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, so there's very um, big excitement for us coming into into Newark, and you know, we don't go to the downtown that's already becoming gentrified, and we don't go to the really difficult areas where it's going to be a bigger, bigger challenge. So we're kind of right in that seam of not there yet, but up and coming, and the folks that are there are—you can't imagine how many are there that you know, have so many ideas to run a business, but just don't have a lot of understanding of how to, how to get there, you know? And so, you know, I often say in my, in my, in my chats, bringing this kind of entrepreneurial scene into the community is, is a social reference as a model is so important. You know, I, I can't wait to to, to hear the day when somebody walks past one of these shops They said, hey, Mr. Uh, Jones, if if I help you sweep the floor, would you show me how to make cabinets? You know, that's the kind of stuff that's missing today and that that the young kids just don't see. Uh, Or we have right next to us St. Benedict's, a very, very good school, as well as a new Mm -hmm. high school for the arts. So we'll bring kids. Good soccer team. that's right. That's right. Uh, We'll bring those kids in and do some internships with them and co-op so they can see that there is a really good way and opportunity for them to make money with their hands. It's very important that this is embedded into the community. And frankly, I have to say kudos to the city of uh, Newark to write what we called maker zoning, which is zoning that allows you to do light manufacturing in a residential building, which is the first kind of zoning in the country. Really interesting. We go maker zoning. It says that if, if the shop is under 1,000 square feet, you can literally do light manufacturing on the bottom floor of a residential building. You can make cabinets. You can make food products. You can make clothing. You can have employees, which is a very unique you know, uh, zoning regulation. And I'm, and I'm happy to say mm-hmm. we have two other projects, one in Patterson and one in Perth Amboy, and both of those cities passed uh, maker zoning, which is really… A, a great trend, and, and I'm hoping to see more of it, so that we can bring back this uh, artisanal sort of making to our town, to our to our centers.
0: Yeah, I just that's my next question. Like, what, where you're growing now? So you're in Port Danville, said, and where else?
2: Yeah, so I own a little parcel in um, Patterson, and that one is um, you know being baked right now. In fact, that one has an interesting uh, architect story. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And then there's one in Perth Amboy. Perth Amboy is a much larger project. It's nearly 10 acres and 500 units and about 80 shops. Typically, our project have 80 shops. Just 20 percent, not 80 shops. I'm sorry. 20 percent of the units are, are, you know, designated for makers, and the rest are purely market rate. So this is not necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not necessarily a quote-unquote affordable housing development. Oh, no, no, no. We've, you know, we've tried that in the past to put all 100% affordable in, in one building, and that's never really worked. So this is 80-20, 80% affordable, uh-huh. Sorry, 80% market, and 20% affordable. Those affordable are designated for the makers. And so the Perth Amboy is the largest one. The one in Patterson is a little smaller than that. But that's, as I said, tied up in a little bit of uh, city issues and waiting, you know, waiting for some rulings there. But that one, what's interesting about that one is we, I met one of the most famous architects in the world right now, a guy named Sue Fujimoto, a Japanese architect. And I met him at a talk, and they asked me what I'm doing, and I explained it to him. And he said, I would love to work on a project like that. So the initial conceptual design came from uh, Su Fujimoto, uh, one of, you know, he's probably top 10 architects in the world right now. So he found it very interesting to uh, work on a project like this Mm -hmm. in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, And he said it's it's solving a kind of a worldwide problem. That's
0: pretty cool. I
2: love it. Yeah, really is interesting. Yeah, he's a great guy, Sue Fujimoto. And he designed something absolutely, you know, wacky, wonderful.
0: (laughs) And so... Where do you see where where else are you growing? Are you just gonna keep going around Jersey? You want to get do you want to get worldwide? Do you want people to like kind of start doing this themselves? Or what's what's
2: exactly. So we are open source in terms of what we do and how we do it. And we love to work with other developers who want to do this kind of work. Look, there's plenty of land to develop in America. I can't develop it all, nor do I want to, nor will I. So what's nice would be if others can develop it, if others can work it, if others can do this with our assistance, we'll tell them how to do this. We'll tell them what's important and what to look for and, and what issues are, are you know, necessary to, to tackle and what does the after, you know, post-occupancy support looks like. So definitely I'd love to see others do this thing. And I'd work with them if, if they need to. In fact, I have a, you know, a policy angle on this too. So for example, let's take a look at our own city in, in, in New York City, the Bronx. right now is undergoing a tremendous amount of you know, revitalization, right? There's a lot of building going on. And of course, the city is all happy because they've got, quote unquote, inclusionary zoning. Well, you know, inclusionary zoning puts, frankly, people that are below the you know, income levels in, in buildings that have luxury apartments. It doesn't really work so well. And frankly, they can't really afford, once the area is gentrified, they can't afford to even shop in, in, the, in the stores that are down below. A better procedure would be to say, you know what? You're building on the South Bronx over here now. Or you're building by Willow Tour, wherever you're building. That's great. You can go as high as you want. You can charge whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you from that. But you know what? Down at the bottom, you're going to build these affordable live-work units so the very people that you're gentrifying can live here, and they'll sell you your lattes and your dry cleaning and all kinds of other stuff so they can earn a good living so they don't have to leave their community. So I see that as such a better technique for, you know, urban redevelopment than just inclusionary, you know, affordable zoning.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think like the 80-20 stuff with these fancy buildings, people feel good about it, but I don't think it creates actual solutions to the problems, which is why I try to bring together people who share this more holistic view like Avi and other people it doesn't really benefit the low income people as much as you would think it would I mean it's better than nothing but providing them with work providing them it costs I think something like seven hundred and eighty thousand dollars to set one of these units aside and if you even just put that into a separate development like Avi's more people would be helped than that one apartment
2: I agree and then if you ask if you ask poor people what do you really want right at the top of that list, and there are many studies by the World Bank, by UN, they want, it's interesting what they say, uh, Mickey, number one, they like to live with dignity, which is really interesting. And number two, what they really want is a job. They want to yeah. be able to prepare themselves. Gotcha.
0: And so if I'm and a developer, it- or I'm a small business, and I want to like, I hear this mm-hmm. podcast, how do, I, how do I find
2: you? Uh, well, there's a uh, makerhoods.org is our website. You can find us there. We're on the internet. Some of my talks are on the internet. Yeah, yeah. You know, find find us online. I'll come to Newark. We're here. <laughs> Sorry, Meg, I cut you off. Go ahead.
1: No, I was I was just adding to what Avi's saying. They want it all in the same place. They want to be able to live, work, get whatever government services, get healthy, affordable food. Not you know you don't want to put like a fancy sushi place at the bottom of this building because then they can't afford to even buy food.
2: Well, every development, Mickey, that's exactly right. Every development, every good one, let's say, will bring in its own economic activity. Like you said, the sushi bars and the, and, and the coffee shops and so on. So it, it does create economic activity. If we can find a way to stream that economic activity towards those who are probably going to get gentrified, towards those that can need it most, that's a win-win all around. It also makes for such a such a nicer community.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. I think it's amazing what you're doing. I, I... I wish I was, I was doing it quite, quite frankly, you probably- It's not easy, it I, can, re- I
2: can show you the scars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it must be very rewarding to kind of see these places kind of, well one, just people creating businesses and, and two, helping these communities kind of come alive again, you know?
2: You know, when I when I go to these meetups and I meet with the folks that are there, it's so interesting, it's so exciting. To see the the ambition, the desire, the drive. I mean, these folks are doing everything that we as a society want from them, but there are so many roadblocks.
0: Yeah, is it more governmental roadblocks? It's
2: zoning, it's cost, it's capital. We didn't even discuss capital. So my first project here in Newark is a thirty million dollar project. When I'm on the phone for closing discussions with lawyers there's about a dozen people on the phone because I've got money from the city, Mm. money from the state, money from the feds, money from tax credits, money from HUD. Oh my God. You know, it's so complex to put these together and it really shouldn't be. they are an opportunity zones. It really shouldn't be. Yeah. And frankly,
0: the projects earn a
2: pretty decent return. You know, let's, let's call it mid teens. So look, I'm not building, you know, luxury condos, but if you can tell me that I can help some families make a living and earn, you know, mid teens, that's a pretty good return.
0: So how do you get the word out about this besides speaking at at Mickey's events?
2: Yeah, I haven't done the PR or any of those things. I've done a few, you know, invited uh, talks like this one. I also did the keynote speech at the governor's conference a couple of years ago here in New Jersey. Uh, where the folks from the state were introduced to this idea. So once you know, I really want some out, outcomes to be published. I want to show that the lady who who you know moved into my facility went from making twenty eight thousand dollars a year to making you know thirty five or forty five thousand dollars a year. I really want to show some statistics like that before we go out and start tooting our horn.
0: Gotcha. I didn't even know this existed, what you do, but it seems so, it seems wonderful. I mean, it just seems like something that somebody should be doing it and you are. I'm glad that you took the initiative to do it. So thank you, especially with uh, New Jersey, which is my, my state. And I love seeing Newark coming to life and, and having people take interest in it. You know, um, Of you know, course, it's
2: not just a, um, uh, an, uh, an income generator for the entrepreneur owner. Each one of these micro enterprises generates four jobs and those jobs pay better than minimum because most of the time the entrepreneur hires family members and they pay them better so it's a great economic development strategy
0: Mm -hmm. so nick what are what are our our final four questions couple questions you want you want to start rattling them off
1: so is there a a book or a class or both that you would recommend to any young people starting out as an entrepreneur on what they should read to be successful in business.
2: Oh gosh, um, <laughs> you know I really liked Peter Thiel's book Zero to One. I don't know how much of that is just on starting a business, but I I like that in terms of how you think about your business and making you know large changes. One of the things that I think is a bit lamentable is a lot of startups are sort of incremental in a way. They do this a little bit better or that a little bit better. I think we need to dream a little bit bigger because a lot of the tools that we have and the te- software and technology is so decent that we can really dream a little bit bigger because some of our problems are a lot bigger. So I really like that book for that. I've actually never heard that. read that book. Have you, Mickey? No, I
1: haven't read it. I've heard about it, but I never read it.
0: Gotcha. You, do you have any other mentors throughout your careers? seems like you have a couple of careers here, but throughout your life, that, that have really influenced you?
2: I had a, a, a teacher at NYU that taught a, an entrepreneurial class. Her name was Victoria Hamilton. And, um, uh, you know, I remember one day being in, in, in class and she said, oh, OK, Avi, what, uh, what are you going to do for a, a master's degree? And, you know, that was, you know, I was only seven years in the country at the time. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't know. And I kid you not, this is the God's honest truth. She goes, well, why don't you apply to Harvard? <laughs> uh, you know, Harvard Business School. I swear I told her, what's that? I didn't even know. <laughs> she said, well, no, you should apply. You know, you've got the kind of talent that they're looking for, blah, blah, blah. I applied and I got in. The point of that is sometimes folks like us that are not, you know, starting out privileged in a way, somebody just has to tell us, you can and you should. So she was really influential that way. She just told me that I should because I can, and and I never would have thought about it myself.
0: (laughs) You just need someone to believe in you, right? Exactly. Open your eyes a little bit.
1: Absolutely. Do you have any other advice for a young person starting out on either places they can go find resources or how they can find out what their options even are, especially for maybe people coming from less privileged backgrounds who their parents don't know or their friend groups are kind of in similar situations. So are there, you know, resources they can Google? Are there government or not-for-profit organizations they should contact that you recommend?
2: Uh, you know, uh, uh, Mickey, with, with, with your permission, I'd like to rephrase that question or, or answer a slightly different question if, it, if it's all right. And it's more, more, sure. more of, a, of a comment. You know, I was in the, you know, regular traditional private sector for-profit uh, all of my life. And it was really interesting when I got into this, uh, let's call it double bottom line or triple bottom line kind of uh, business where not only do you want to earn a profit, but you want to help a lot of people. Whereas one is is chess, the other one is three-dimensional chess because you really literally have to think not only how the business makes money, but how do you help a lot of people along the way, you know? So what I'd like to say is that for all of, of you in the audience who, are, you know, who want to be a business person, who want to create businesses and, and, and become an entrepreneur, just a traditional business, that's maybe a 200, 300 hitter in baseball. If you go on and start a business that also helps a lot of people, that's like being a 400 hitter. That's like being a really super duper. It's a higher calling as well as a much more complicated business to be in. So I urge you to also think about growing, starting businesses that not only earn a profit, but also help a lot of people. And frankly, that's a lot harder than just a traditional business.
0: Yeah. Say that again. Wow. That's awesome. That's something to really think about. How is everyone's business impacting the world, you know?
2: Right.
0: Well, it's been amazing getting to know you better. You've had an uh, incredible journey. I'd like to sit down with you one day and, and just hear a little bit more about it. But uh, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time here. Really appreciate the, the time you spent with us. And can you go over the, your website again? What is that again?
2: It's a www.makerhoods.org. Makerhoods. Yeah, Makerhoods. M-A-K-E-R-H-O-O-D-S.org.
0: I love it. Well, Avi, appreciate okay, we your time. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. See you on the 15th, Mickey. Bye, Avi. Thank you. See you on the 15th.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.